Next Chapter Podcasts. The song has got me under pressure. You know what I love about doing this podcast is that I knew all the hits off this record, but when you get to one like this one, this is the one. This is the song that I'm taking with me throughout the rest of my life. The other ones, all great, but got me under pressure. Who? Wang Zuki. It's by ZZ Top from their 1983 smash hit record, Eliminator. It's also number 398 out of five fizzle on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What is up, Fleece Army? Thank you to all the people that tuned in to the goddamn Comedy Jam at InCrowd. Guys, I'm telling you, the next one is November 14th. It is fucking awesome because if you pay for the VIP, which is a $30 ticket, you get to interact with all of the comics. They can see into your house and we get you singing. We do crowd work with you. You get to see Jim Jeffries sing. You got to see Jamie Kennedy sing, the Sklar Brothers, Tony Baker. Man, it was, honest to God, it was my favorite night of 2020, which isn't saying much because this has been a fucking shit year. But November 14th, we are doing a birthday celebration goddamn comedy jam. Let me tell you, if you know me and you know the podcast and you know who I hang out with, it's got big fucking names. I want to see all of you there November 14th. To the people that showed up, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Honestly, it was just full of love. It was great. Be a part of the goddamn comedy jam at the in crowd. Also, uh, to the people that are submitting to our 500 theme song contest, guys, we want you, the Fleece Army members, to write the theme song for the 500. I know there's a lot of musicians out there, a lot of musical artists that listen to this podcast. So what I want you guys to do is create the 500 podcast theme music. And you can send it to 500podcasts at gmail.com or go to our website, the500podcast.com. Send us your music. And if you're wondering how we're going to pick the winner, because we've already got some. Some were really good. Some kind of suck balls. But the members of our Patreon, a.k.a. the 500 Club, we are going to put them up there so you guys can vote on who did the best theme song. And the winner will get one-year subscription to the 500 Club, all free merch, and you get everything that we're offering in our Patreon, guys. And what do we offer in our Patreon? Free merch, all the full episodes for the last two years. Uh, You get all the video that we record for each episode. It's only $5 a month, guys. Join Patreon. Help the show out. All right. We got a Wang Zuki of a record, and I don't want to waste any time, so let's dive into it. Released on March 23rd of 1983 on Warner Brothers Records and produced by Bill Ham with Terry Manning Engineering, this is the eighth studio album by ZZ Top. So Houston native Billy Gibbs grew up with a dad in show business and even got to see Elvis Presley and B.B. King play live before he was eight years old. His musicality started with training and percussion before getting his first electric guitar at age 13. 
After coming to Hollywood to attend Warner Brothers Art School and playing in a few bands out here, he moved back to Houston in the mid-60s at 18 and inspired by his friend Rocky Erickson's band, the 13th Floor Elevators, formed the psychedelic blues rock band, The Moving Sidewalks. They gained some popularity with a few regionally charting singles and opened for The Animals, The Doors, and Jimi Hendrix until half the band got drafted. Then in 69, Billy became intrigued by a bunch of blues legends like B.B. King and ZZ Hill. So he started ZZ Top with the Moving Sidewalks drummer and a few other musicians before becoming a power trio with drummer Frank Beard and bassist Dusty Hill, who had previously played together in the Dallas band American Blues. A bit earlier, they met Bill Ham, who would become not just their longtime manager, but also producer, co-writer, and image consultant. They signed with the London record label and released five albums during their first decade together, which included big hits like Tush and LaGrange. After reaching national success and critical acclaim and basically seven years on the road, the band needed some time off to re-energize themselves and their sound. They took a 90-day break, which grew into two years. Those two years not only revitalized their sound, but reinvented the band's image into a new decade. Billy and Dusty independently decided to grow their beards out long, ironically leaving Frank Beard as the only beardless member. They signed a new deal with Warner Brother Records and released two more hit albums. The band was adapting with the modernization of gear and recording techniques and evolving with the music scene around them while still honing their signature sound and keeping their sense of humor. After hooking up with songwriter, engineer, and pre-producer Lyndon Hudson while working on El Loco, which was their seventh album, they started experimenting with more contemporary sounds, ideas, and added synthesizers. And that continued on with the writing and recording of this album because it reflected new wave and punk rock. Billy and Lyndon basically made rough demos of the whole album before even going into the studio. On most of the songs, Dusty and Frank didn't play as their parts were already put on by Billy and Lyndon with synthesizers and sequencers. However, all songs are credited to the band playing. And besides adapting to new sounds, they also took advantage of the new MTV phenomenon by making three male fantasy videos that played in endless rotation helping the album sell over 15 million records. Eliminator was a smash hit, and it made ZZ Top worldwide stars. They went on to make seven more albums, sell out world tours, sell about 50 million records, induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004, and the Texas House of Representatives has named them official heroes for the state of Texas. And guess what? I've got one of those heroes here today to talk about the record that they made. I mean, sometimes you get good guests and sometimes you get good guests. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is the one and only Billy Gibbons. One third is ZZ Top. Everything you're about to hear today is coming right from the man that lived it. This was a joy to talk to this dude. Huge fan of his music, huge fan of his look and huge fan of his beard, which I'm cutting my long goatee. We talk about it on here, but I waited for you guys. We recorded this a few months ago. I am so ready to cut this goddamn goatee. I have no idea how he can keep that beard for so long. Jesus Christ. He's, he looks good with it. Me, not so much. 
rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms, anywhere you get your pods. If you're listening on Stitcher or Apple, leave a five-star rating and please, dear God, leave a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. For all my shows, go to my website, joshadammyers.com. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, 500 Podcast with Jam. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, nothing left to say, but uh, here we go. With number 398 out of 500 with Eliminator by ZZ Top. So I, I didn't plan this, but when COVID started, I started growing my beard and then I cut it down to the goatee. So I don't know. This is like this goatee right here is from about March 12th until now. And I was going to cut it, dude. I was going to cut it. And then I was like, I found out that we booked you. And I was like, I can't cut this goatee until after this shit comes out. I have, this is like my way of respecting your legend, your beard, everything, your music, everything. You said you're, you're not going to shave it till this thing is over. That brings up a funny, uh, back in 2007, I think it was 2007, the Boston Red Sox were in the World Series. They were competing to win the pennant. And all the players vowed to not shave until they won the pennant. And uh, about that time, I was invited to join a songwriter, Tim Montana, in Nashville. And I went in the studio. I said, well, what you got? And he said, well, we're just kind of starting. I said, well, I kind of like that one tune you were humming as we came in. And he goes, oh, it's kind of corny. I don't know if we want to do it. I said, well, it's kind of catchy. What do you call it? He said, well, it's just a title. It's called This Beard Came Here to Party. <laughs> so we wound up writing it, and then the Boston Red Sox picked it up, and, of course, they won the pennant, which <laughs> – Yeah, dude. <laughs> so let the beard fly, brother. <laughs> oh, I'm, I am. I am. I'm not going to lie, man. Like, I, I think it looks so good on you, but on me, I feel like – Dude, I look like I look like the bad guy from The Princess Bride. Do you remember that movie? His name was yeah. Count Rugen. He has, like, six fingers. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll keep it. I don't know. But back to what's important. So I so I talked to you about this before we started recording. Uh, we had uh, we had on the five hundred list. We already did Trace Ombres, uh, which is a phenomenal record, man. And and I'm not gonna lie, man. I'm I'm a rock and roll fan. I grew up really musically in the '80s and the '90s, like hair metal. Uh, so that was my first real foray into ZZ Top, aside from the hits that I already knew. And Trace Ombres blew me away. But then you get which is about 10 years later, to Eliminator, which is one of your biggest records and one of the biggest rock records of all time. So before we get into this record, I want you to tell me, uh, what was your first impression on meeting the boys in the band? First impression on meeting uh, the boys? Well, uh, Frank Beard, the man with no beard, as he's become known, uh, was uh, traveling from Dallas back down through Houston on the invitation of a guy that was sitting in playing bass guitar as we started uh, working uh, out of the moving sidewalks into this thing that would become known as ZZ Top. And uh, on listening to Frank's performance, 
through this uh, impromptu jam session. I said, gee whiz, that, that's, that's the kind of a sound that uh, I'm gravitating to. Uh, I just uh, spent some time with Jeff Beck, and he was, uh, he was still fronting his, his outfit with Rod Stewart singing. Nicky Hopkins was on piano. Ron Wood on bass, mind you. But uh, Mickey Waller was setting the, setting the pace. And between uh, Mitch Mitchell from Hendrix's outfit and, and what Mickey was doing with Jeff's outfit, here came this guy, Frank Beard, the man with no beard, who kind of had a style that, that was in between the two. So it was a perfect setup on the percussion side. And it was Frank, I must point out, that brought Dusty Hill into the picture. And uh, I, I, I was kind of encouraged knowing that uh, Frank had uh, unveiled the fact he and Dusty Hill had worked together since they were like 14 years old. And I said, great, great. Why don't we set up an audition? So it was a casual afternoon, a three o'clock thing. But uh, by the time five o'clock rolled around, Dusty was still, he was MIA, not to be found. And then that went on to uh, 6 p.m. I said, well, let's take a quick break. Maybe we can go out and, and grab a bite. About 9 o'clock, we had returned to our little uh, uh, abode, and there was a knock on the door, and I opened it up to see this kind of gnome-like creature holding a j gallon jug of wine. He stumbled in, and he said, uh, you must be Billy. He said, I'm Dusty. And at that point, he collapsed and passed out. <laughs> <laughs> I said, this is my kind of guy. So yeah. <laughs> we uh, we crawled from the wreckage and uh, we got together the next day. And uh, what was going to be uh, oh, a little shuffle in the key of C, uh, we wound up uh, shuffling for about three hours straight. That's when we knew that uh, something was percolating. Oh, that's incredible. That is so incredible. All right. So you, you guys make some records. And then you start working on this one. This comes out March 23rd, 1983. So I want you to tell me about, like, where are your heads at uh, right before you started working on this record? 1983. Well, as it's, as it's been well reported f f through the years, starting in 1969 when ZZ Top was officially made uh, uh, an outfit, um, we released the first record in 1971. The second record was a year later, Rio Grand Mud. And then 73 was that interesting turning point as we left, uh, the recording scene in Texas and, um, with the invitation of our good friend up there, uh, Robert Johnson, uh, he was playing in a, in a group called Mud Boy and the Neutrons. And that was Jim Dickinson's outfit. But uh, Robert had heard about ZZ Top somehow through uh, another good friend of ours. And uh, through these, th these long-distance association between Texas and Tennessee, we wound up playing on a blues show in Memphis at the Overton Park Band Show. And at the conclusion, we met backstage, and uh, Robert was very keen on... Uh, lifting the lid and showcasing this uh, rather famous, uh, what was to become a very famous recording studio, Ardent Recording, right there on Madison Avenue. And uh, when I had learned that Led Zeppelin was uh, 
finalizing their work on Led Zeppelin III. That caught our attention, and I was uh, successfully persuasive in bringing uh, ZZ Top into the uh, Memphis music scene. And we started working on what was later to become the Eliminator Sessions. And uh, that little bit of backstory is uh, kind of a shortcut, which uh, basically led us into keeping Memphis, Tennessee, our home for the next 20 years. So uh, 1983 was a was a genuine turning point. Uh, we had been at Arden prior to that. Uh, uh, 1973 was the release of Trace Hombres. We had recorded the tracks in Texas, but the real magic unfolded at Ardent when uh, under the the uh, three main guys, there was Terry Manning, Joe Hardy, and John Hampton, all working for the studio owner, Mr. John Fry. And uh, Trace Hombres, of course, which was mixed and released from the Ardent uh, umbrella, that was the first top 10 for ZZ Top. LaGrange hit the charts and off and running we went. So we we decided we had hit on some kind of uh, a formula that seemed to work. And from 73, as you pointed out, 10 years go by, and now we're starting to peel the onion <laughs> with these, uh, these new, new, new angles and new, new ways to make music. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Well, hey, friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. So, but you're talking about peeling the onion. I mean... Not taking anything away from Trace Hombres because it is a phenomenal record and it has that ZZ Top sound. But you guys with Eliminator are venturing into just you're using state of the art technology. You're using music uh, that is 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 been that is popular around the world, but just has never been in that ZZ Top sound. So 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 how do you get to that? Well, we must lend credence to the. Uh the interest and willingness on the part of the studio owner, John Fry. Uh, John was intent on keeping Ardent as a world-class destination to make records and was not afraid in the least to inspect, experiment, and invest in some of the latest and greatest things that uh, the recording world was offering for, for studio. And, uh, 
that kind of caught on with, uh, as I mentioned, uh, John Hampton, John uh, Fry, of course, was the ringleader, uh, Joe Hardy and Terry Manning. Between the four of those guys, they made it possible to bring a group into the studio and just turn it loose with whatever kind of experimentation you were willing to take. And we were just kind of, you know, we were still uh, crawling from the 18 year old, all, all I want's a free beer and the chance to meet the girls. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so experimentation, we were not, we were kind of fearless in that regard. And uh, curiosity was leading the, leading the charge. So off we go into uh, studio B and uh, lo and behold, in Studio B uh, was uh, an array of musical uh, contraptions that didn't really have a name. Uh, the manuals were the size of a phone book, so those got thrown in the trash uh, immediately, and we just started <laughs> twisting knobs. Yeah, but dude. Uh, we did come into the fold with, with a couple of new concepts that we had returned to focusing some attention on the importance of tuning and timing. And those became the backbone for the sessions that uh, became the Eliminator record. We were really focused on those two elements. And uh, it, I think it worked out nicely. Uh, we, didn't, we, we, didn't, we had no prediction, but uh, somewhere along the line, it started making sense. So, because that's so funny that, that you're saying that because you're, you're, all right, so we did we did Hysteria by Def Leppard on the podcast, and Mutt Lang and Def Leppard wanted to make uh, a a heavy metal thriller with like just seven you know top ten number one hit songs, and there was like this formula. And did you guys kind of go into these sessions with that idea? Like, no, we're gonna we're gonna make this as 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 open to what's going on in 1983 as we can taking ZZ Top to this new like plateau where you're just you're not just appealing to the to the you know the rock and roll fans you're appealing to everybody interesting question i believe the uh, the the way to to understand what was actually unfolding the sessions were so casual there was no hard start time and and uh, John Fry was a big fan of what we were attempting to start doing. And he basically gave us the key and said, come and go as you please. And I believe that kind of um, without uh, without a plan, so to speak, we we would tiptoe in the studio and we'd poke around. And as again, I said, uh, we started twisting knobs. There were some interesting uh, machines. Now, keep in mind the early 80s. The music business was uh, undergoing some fairly radical transformations in that m most of the major manufacturers were starting to look at look at some of these new ways that music was was starting to unfold and uh, the luck of the draw had ZZ Top in this very room uh, there at Ardent where John Fry had uh, wheeled in stacks of uh, all these these new things that uh, we knew the six string guitar, we knew the four string bass guitar, we knew a set of drums, but what were those things that were plugged into the wall over there? Yeah, and that's uh, that's what really uh, created the character and the personality that that pervaded the entire record. It it uh, was mostly by kind of uh, well 
absolute experimentation. And uh, once we started, uh, we started peeling the knobs and as long as we started making it sound trashy and garbage, like then we knew we were onto something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. You're like, as long as we keep peeling this onion and tears keep developing in my eyes, we're doing something right. Oh yeah. Well, Let's dive into the record because it's phenomenal and there's so many great songs in here to talk about. All right, so, I mean, obviously you know. So you open the record with such a banger. Give me all your loving. Uh, Peter, play the intro real quick. So the first thing I noticed, Billy, is that the beat and tempo sound very similar to Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, which I think would have been out right around the same time. Am I right or am I wrong about that? That is correct. In fact, I think that a lot of producers were stumbling into the same uh, new world that uh, was unfolding around the well, around the world in in, in uh, production circles and and recording studios, the curiosity factor was running so high that everyone was, was willing to start the, uh, the uh, going into uh, worlds unknown with some of this new, uh, new equipment, some of this new music making stuff. And uh, it was about, yeah, uh, th- there were some real milestones being uh, uh, traversed uh, without question, Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller was, uh, and and of course, uh, Quincy Jones was at the helm. And uh, we had an opportunity to speak uh, one afternoon and both of us kind of shrugged our shoulders saying, well, we didn't really know until it became known. And that was, uh, everything was after the fact. We were just kind of, <laughs> I keep coming back to this, Twisting of knobs. No, talk about the twisties. Yeah, dude, talk about the twisties. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> um, these these new contraptions, uh, they didn't really know what to call this stuff. Uh, I think the word synthesizers started uh, becoming a little <laughs> more familiar. Out. Yeah, but uh, it it came to uh, using your ear, and it it was all really about the feel. And and if you listen to uh, some of the big hit records from the period. Um, one thing is for sure, uh, thanks to the era of disco, which, which you got to keep in mind at this time, um, to save money, there was some records being uh, coming out of New York and, uh, the disco scene was going, going crazy. But one thing's for sure, it was this repetitive beat that seems to be uh, putting everybody at ease. Um, uh, a good beat becomes trustable. And as a human being, we're we're drawn to, we gravitate to anything that becomes trustable. Keep in mind, if you're on the dance floor and you, you your girlfriend has dragged you out on the dance floor, the last thing you want to be hearing is uh, some drummer that drops a stick and loses the beat, then you lose your balance and then yeah. you're on the floor and the girlfriend is laughing at you. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, the, 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 the value of keeping good time became a backbone. It was really uh, those two elements, timing and tuning. Yeah. I mean, 
the, immediately when I heard this after doing a little bit of research on it, the, the first thing that popped in my head was Billie Jean. The other thing that popped into my head a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear a little bit of another Texas artist, Steve Miller's, like kind of like an abracadabra. Well, yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was uh, er- earlier in the year, right after, uh, uh, after the close of. Uh, 2019 uh, must have been right at the first of the year. And of course, uh, everything was so wide open. I, I happened to pass by Steve Miller's, uh, uh, darkened his doorstep. And we got to talking about just this very thing, how there, there was uh, uh, this turning point when the musicians were starting to realize the value of, of certain elements in making records. Of course, Steve's, Steve's, uh, backing group was uh, they were stellar uh, studio at just par excellence these guys knew how to do it but uh, yeah as we moved through uh, you go back and listen to uh, some of the great records from the 80s they still become so listenable because of the attention to uh, that which feels uh, and it, it light, enlightens and ignites the uh, magnetism that the spirit wants to be drawn to pretty cool oh i love that oh i love that no i say that all the time it doesn't make a difference if you're if you're from from europe or africa or america if you're white black chinese doesn't make a difference if a song sounds good we all love it it's the universal language of the world which is just because you could put on i could listen to like you know zz top and then i could listen to to some like you know anthrax and then i could listen to some Katy perry and if and if and if they all are good songs and like you said have that like that vibration of that beat it just it gets into your soul man so i i I can only imagine uh you know because the i mean when this came out i was what three or four years old i can only imagine just the reception of this like did you start seeing from this being released, new fans starting to come out of the woodworks is easy top that you hadn't seen before. Oh yeah. And then, um, keep in mind at this, uh, juncture, this was the dawn of a new element that, uh, descended into the listening experience. And that was adding the visual content. And here we have MTV and, um, as the Eliminator sessions were percolating and taking shape, there was a guy working within our outfit that uh, had stumbled across this newfound medium uh, video. And uh, we didn't really understand uh, why had, it had not been uh, put together in uh, certainly the rock and roll circles. I mean, uh, motion pictures had counted on adding a musical content to to films, but, uh, somebody, uh, conveniently dreamed up a way to, to bring it to the general public called 24 hour channel of music with visuals called MTV. And, uh, of course the, the development of these early videos was kind of a shot in the dark. Everybody was rolling the dice. The major record labels didn't know what to make of it. So they kind of shrugged their shoulders and they said, well, yeah, you're going to do it, but uh, it'll be on your dime. And uh, that's when the uh, the Weekend Warriors came out, because in order to make uh, ends meet, uh, well, I don't know about uh, anybody but ZZ Top, we started after 
after six o'clock on Friday afternoon, because that's when the union uh, allowed you to work over the weekend. <laughs> so in at six o'clock on Friday, and then you had to wrap up by 6 a.m. Monday morning. And uh, those, uh, the first, uh, in fact, I'm glad you played uh, that, that opening track, Gimme Are You Lovin'. That was- uh, It's so iconic. So iconic. It was one of our favorites. And uh, uh, we started talks with uh, the idea of, of adding this video component in mind. And we, we happened to cross uh, the great director, Tim Newman. And uh, Tim had come to our attention. He had done some uh, really uh, uh, quite appealing uh, uh, TV ads for Coca-Cola. They were, they were youth-oriented. Uh, they were bright. They were kind of uplifting. And Tim was, uh, Tim was definitely with it. He, he, had the, uh, he had the vision to keep everything on the uptip. So when we brought uh, when we brought the track in, he said, "Well, he said I, I, I'm I'm here to say uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, somewhat aware of you guys." And he said, um, uh, "Creating a video is my cup of tea." He said, "But I'd like you to tell me about this hot rod car that uh, is on your record." And then we got into the uh, the term eliminator it was drawn from. Uh, the world of drag racing, you know, top eliminator was the highest you could go. And uh, we, we thought that that was a fitting tribute, but uh, to the, to the work that we had accomplished. And then, and then uh, um, Tom Honeycutt was a hot rod artist, a graphic artist in the hot rod world. And he came forward. He said, yeah, I heard that you're doing uh, some of my hot rodding buddies of yours telling me about this record. You're going to call it Eliminator. He said, can I take a shot at putting uh, some hot rod imagery with it? And I said, sure, let's try it. And that's when uh, Tim Newman said, uh, I've heard that there's actually a car that looks like the album cover. And I said, well, yeah, let's try it. And he said, well, if you don't mind giving me the keys, I've got three pretty girls to match you three ugly guys. <laughs> but that's when it took off. Oh, it's brilliant. All right, let's dive into the second track, Got Me Under Pressure. Uh, here, Peter, play 56 seconds in. All right, you mentioned a, a moment ago about Weekend Warriors. This is probably one of my favorite lyrics, and I got to ask you about it. She likes cocaine and flipping out with Great Danes. Was there someone you had in mind when writing that lyric? Well, there was probably many. Uh, <laughs> that was, uh, that's another, uh, how we got away with it, I don't know. It was a sign of the times. Uh, but uh, the uh, the humor behind it, you can't overlook the fact that that uh, humor was uh, driving this whole record, um, and it, and um, I, I would say it was it stopped short of being too cartoonish. But we were having such a a uh, an interesting time uh, pretending that we knew what we were doing in the studio. That was uh, that in itself was rather uh, entertaining. Um, but but yeah the the, uh, the 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 whole the magic of of uh, 
that particular period uh, remains uh, a, a vital part. I've, I've got, I've, I've still meet friends on the street. Hey man, uh, you're that guy, you're that guy that brought me to my girlfriend and uh, this and that. And the, I mean, it's, it was, uh, it was, it was a real blessing to see all of that getting married. And uh, keep in mind, there's a, uh, a twist of irony and humor behind all that. Uh, as we were in the studio, uh, we were pretending to be these, uh, you know, seasoned uh, session players. And at the same time, we were, we were approaching uh, the mysteries of some of this new musical equipment and it became uh, it, it became rather humorous to see uh, ZZ Top, these three uh, rock and roll bluesy guys, uh, going into uh, uh, lands unknown. And uh, uh, I, I think all of us were uh, enamored with the fact we were uh, we were we were pretending to know what we were doing when we did not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, especially when you're calling things those turny things. Yes. <laughs> the, guy, the guy that owns it's like, all right, dude, it's got a name. It's Moog 4372. And you're like, we call it the turny box. That's right, <laughs> right. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. So, so this is the second single, uh, and it was also written and demoed without Dusty and, or Frank. So you're using sequence drums and synth bass played on the keyboard, so their involvement wasn't really necessary on some of the songs like this one. Did you get any resistance or flack from the other guys about that? Oh, absolutely not. Once they realized that uh, they could sit back in the easy chair while I was doing the twisting, <laughs> they were all about it. They said, yeah, do some more of that. <laughs> really? So you didn't have to... Cause I was, my next follow-up question was, how did you present it to them? So... Like, I mean, if you're saying you were just like, so guys, you're going to chill. We're going to use these drums, this bass, do nothing. Just hang out, have a beer. Like, literally, that's it? Yeah. Um, and, and this is probably a shared uh, a feeling by most of the musicians that had the luxury of, of having the studio key in hand and not uh, having to worry about the clock. That was uh, that was always of concern back in 
the old, old, old days in uh, in in the recording world, uh, you had to you had to um, you had to spend I don't know half a year rehearsing and making sure that you knew the material. Uh, but this was a, a a new chapter. The, the the pages hadn't even been filled out when uh, when we could go in and uh, we'd work up a song uh, over in the corner. And if we saw the engineers waving their hands saying, "Hey, you're on to something," keep going on that track. And before you know it, instead of uh, instead of writing uh, songs with without a direction, we had the the bonus and the luxury of the teamwork. Where, where the, the the music was unfolding uh, in such a manner that uh, the engineers they kind of knew what was starting to to make their pulse beat, and uh, if they'd give us the uh, high sign, we would we'd follow that track. It it was, uh, uh, and it's still somewhat like that today. I th- I think that that. It's uh, the creation of uh, musical expression is is an event that uh, is it's a shared event with a a large number of uh, participants that makes it it makes it really uh, exciting to to continue to be able to to create these crazy things. Sure, I, I love that you said that when you when the, the the guys in the booth they start hearing it they start feeling it. And they know they're onto something. They know that it's special. So, which brings us to the third song on the album, "Shark Dressed Man," which once again is another iconic song with uh, your this incredible fire guitar riff, um, and then these lyrics that I that I find to be a little humorous. And I want to know if this is why you wrote them because you got clean shirt, new shoes, and I don't know where I'm going to. Silk suit black tie i don't need a reason why and i've got to ask you this that's not how you dress <laughs> well we had to uh we had to kind of revise our uh, appearance um i think uh dusty uh, came up with probably the best uh example of what zz top was um he said gee whiz now we've got to be these sharp dressed men i said well yeah is you got a problem with that he says no but I think it'd be fair to say we were immune to fashion. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you this. Did you guys feel any pressure to stay in that image that you created in these videos? Oh, without question. Uh, we uh, stepped forward. We we showed up on the set. Uh, we had some semblance of, I think it was kind of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, meets, uh, I don't know, it was kind of hoboish. Uh, but we didn't have to worry too much because the pretty girls, of course, they took all the heat off of us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right, let's move on. Let's go uh, into I Need You Tonight. So this is your longest song on the album, probably the only ballad, possibly my favorite on this record. Also, this one really just showcases how incredible of a guitarist you are because the solo is phenomenal. Uh, Peter, play just a little taste of it. So 
this song uh, kind of reminds me of the songs from some of your older records. Why throw this one on there if you already are moving in a different direction? Well, there was uh, a good phrase that seemed to capture what ZZ Top was all about. We were moving ahead, but we still had one foot in the blues. And um, late one night, we we started uh, laying down the tracks. Uh, we knew that uh, we had... We had a, a tremendous amount of success by including something um, a little slower, a little more in the uh, the laid back groove, and and yet it it, uh, it required some really uh, it, it that that cerebral moment when we said, "Well, gee whiz," he said, uh, "We said the the music is." Uh, proceeding in a logical manner and and at the same time it was proceeding in an illogical manner but i got with uh, terry manning and terry uh, said gee whiz he said uh, this should be a little bit mysterious he said uh, the fact that uh, we still we still need that love connection and uh, i remember it was raining uh, it was lightning, thunder, you name it. It was coming down. It was one of those uh, deep south uh, gully washers that was sweeping across Memphis. And I couldn't get back to the studio. And uh, the phone uh, rang. I was stuck back at the Peabody Hotel, and it was Terry. He said, hey, man, he said, we're almost completed with this thing. I need you. I need you tonight. <laughs> we need to finish this thing. I said, there it is. I said, <laughs> There's the song. <laughs> so from a from a, a unexpected phone call, he was saying, uh, he said, get in the car. Don't mind the wet weather. He said, we can dry off. He said, but uh, and I said, well, I need you tonight. I think we can we can we can use it. I love it. I love it. Uh, all right. So I've, I, I read that it, from 76 to 77, you guys were in this like super extravagant year and a half, uh, 98 show worldwide Texas tour. And first of all, y'all had bisons, buzzards and snakes on the stage, uh, built in the shape of Texas. I can only imagine what the fuck that smelt like up there. <laughs> but then you take this, this short break that turns into a two year long sabbatical and you traveled around the world. And I mean, I'd hope to broaden your horizons. So I, I want to know, like what influences did you bring back to the band? Well, there was a good friend of ours, uh, another fellow Texan that had moved uh, uh, to a small village in France. And uh, he had learned that we had uh, uh, come off the road. We'd been on the road for seven years straight. We had never taken a break. And this was a, uh, a well-deserved and well-needed uh, respite from the rigors of the road. And I decided to... Uh, meet up with my buddy, Andy Feehan, uh, to this day remains a uh, rather gifted uh, visual artist. And uh, from, from London, he, he extended the invitation. He said, oh, it's not just, it's, it's short ways. He said, uh, I'll meet you in Paris, France. He said, I want to introduce you to some guys that were doing some interesting things as the Xerox copy machine. A can you imagine finding expressiveness in this rather mundane, somewhat antiseptic medium, yeah. photocopy machines. 
but we started to we we noticed if uh, uh, if you copied a copy and then you continued to copy a copy, the degradation started producing some anomalies that were really interesting, and uh, so this connection with uh, the visual arts. Uh, it kept on going. Dusty had gone down to uh, Mexico. Frank actually went to Jamaica. He made friends with Carly Barrett, who was working with Bob Marley. Carly Barrett, of course, the inventor of the one drop. Uh, and then uh, he invited Dusty down to Jamaica. And uh, uh, Bob Marley's bass player, Aston Family Man Barrett. Carly Barrett and Aston Family Man Barrett, the two brothers that were the backbone of the rhythm section with Bob Marley and the Whalers, uh, they were they were teaching Frank and and Dusty some some uh, kind of opposing ways to get into the backbeat. And when we all uh, finally got back together, now keep in mind, we were in constant uh, contact solely by telephone. We were in such remote parts of the world that we couldn't really see much of each other. Uh, however, uh, when we got back together we noticed there was one element that drew us back together and we had, we had all discovered laziness. We, we had all quit shaving. <laughs> so born was the uh, two foot chin whiskers. Oh, I love that. That's what they're called. The two foot chin whiskers. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got about a three inch, three inch, uh, chin drop. That's what I'm <laughs> this shit right here. As the old saying goes, let it fly, brother. Let it fly. Baby, I'm keeping this going until October 16th when this comes out, and then I'm shaving this motherfucker off with quickness. <laughs> I'm trying to get laid again. Right, yeah. Speaking speaking of getting laid, the next song I want to talk about, I Got the Six. Um, I can only imagine the parents that got their kids this record for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, and because they're like, oh, this is that fun band from MTV. And then this song comes on. Sample lyrics I want to talk about. Look at this. What a pair. She won't let me touch her there. She's so discriminating. This is weird. It's time to blow. I just heard the rooster crow. I guess I'll have to spank my monkey. I mean, this is, <laughs> I'm a comic bro, and you're writing comedy gold. Like, this is some straight up ZZ Top rock and roll, and, and you guys are really fucking funny. Like, who, like, where does this sense of humor come from in the band? Like, you know, tell me about the song and tell me about your sense of humor. Well, it's, it's, it's really no secret. It's long been known that, uh, you know, uh, early on, we decided that we were not going to become the next Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but then the, uh, the magnetism and the, the, the mystic appeal of that secret language of the blues. It's like learning how to say it without saying it. And we draw from that rich uh, texture of uh, this great American art form, the blues, which uh, allowed us to, uh, uh, to tiptoe, tiptoe through uh, the forbidden lands of uh, what you can say and what you might not want to be caught saying. But, uh, uh, we've taken uh, we've taken a page out of just about every book that we can find, and uh, of course, our heroes, the Rolling Stones, uh, still to this day, making much of uh, uh, a very similar draw of this uh, this mysterious art form. Um, 
but anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, my mom even uh, asked me. Uh, she said, "Now, could could you just could you explain? Uh, this is really uh, I, I like." I said, "No, uh, that, that's that's going to have to wait for another day." <laughs> I mean, you guys, because I, I see that you guys are setting up the card game double entendres, but then you just say "fuck it" and go for it, and it's huh. phenomenal. Like, I mean, seriously, this song stopped me in my tracks, like laughing. Like this, not only is the song rip, but I mean, the lyrics were great. So, so who's the funniest guy in the band? Because obviously you guys have a great sense of humor. I think we would all default to saying um, who's the first. What keeps us on our toes is we don't know which guy is the guy that's going to make the first mistake. When we're out there on stage, um, we seem to think that we know the songs, but every so often we call it going to the Bahamas. It's... Uh, <laughs> All right, I love it. All right, moving on. Uh, let's dive into legs. Uh, here, Peter, play the opening of legs. So this is the fifth and final single and won you guys your first MTV Video Award for Best Group Video. And as any boy growing up then will tell you, this video launched a million boners. Yeah, yeah. The the genesis is actually rather it's somewhat innocuous and in the opposite direction. Someone said, "Well, gosh, that's such a uh, it's such an infectious groove, and uh, we like the visuals." How did that start? Uh, one afternoon, uh, I had been had been coerced unmercifully by my two partners, uh, both Frank and Dusty said, Hey man, you're going to have to join the club. You're going to have to get a, uh, get a, a car that we're not embarrassed to be seen in. So <laughs> as it turned out, I reluctantly uh, and begrudgingly went down to, uh, to, uh, the, uh, the Mercedes dealership because I had a high school buddy that was, uh, he was kind of running the show. And uh, he said, well, man, he said, you need, he said, you're a hot rodder at heart. He said, we know what you uh, up to. He said, I, I can understand you're, you're getting pressured by Frank and Dusty. He said, let me put you in the little two seater, the, the little Mercedes Roadster. He said, you can take the top off if it's a sunny day out. He said, I'm sure they'll be happy to see you jetting around town in this nice little Roadster. Well, as it turned out, uh, I had to go collect them to make a rehearsal day. They uh, had found themselves without a ride. So I said, well, you're going to, you guys are, we're going to have to cram into this little two seater. And uh, so, which we did. And we're, we're cruising down the street and lo and behold, talking about rainstorm as we did earlier, here came another. Now this was a Texas downpour. Yeah. And as we pulled up to the corner, we were on a wide Avenue and on the far side was a, a young lady that uh, was quite attractive and we didn't want to see her get wet. So we sped up, made a U-turn. We came back to pick her up, but vanished. She was gone. And I said, man, she had legs and knows how to use them. She Ooh. is out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's uh, you go ahead. Well, yeah. Once again, uh, there was the happenstance occurrence where uh, just something out of the blue led to uh, 
a, a song that we still enjoy playing to this day. It's such a great song. Um, and and I've read that y'all got a lot of shit for this song because people thought that you were abandoning abandoning your basic sound. Is there anything that you remember? Any flack that you got from this? Oh yeah, in the beginning, I think that uh, we had turned over a new leaf, and like most things, uh, you know, this the Joker gene in all of us, the human part that, that says, "I don't want to change. Don't don't tweak me." Um, uh, it took a while, you know. Uh, as you point out, Legs was the uh, was the last single to be released off the record, and it was a year after the the album had hit the streets, which uh, is quite remarkable. Uh, the, the record uh, came out early with uh, the first single, "Give Me All Your Lovin'," much later, "Sharp Dressed Man." But a, a full year later is when Legs hit the streets. By this time, I think that that uh, we, had, we had resumed our uh, travels around the world, playing shows here and there. And they realized, wait a minute, these are still the bluesy guys. They've just added another dimension. Let's go for it. They got those twisty things, whatever those <laughs> fucking things are called. They got them twist. That song sounds like it's full of twisties. And you're like, you goddamn right it is. All right, speaking of a different sound, then you get to Thug. Uh, which has Dusty just going off uh, on these little bass runs that I fucking love. This, to me, reminds me of Brothers Johnson, maybe some Ohio players, some some OJs. And I know you were interested in what was going on in different scenes. So did did you guys ever go to, like, discos or dance clubs during their heyday? Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the Memphis influences that, that seemed to kind of support and and hold us up uh, when we were uh, looking for some uh, as i mentioned one foot in the blues well how do we how do we take this new tact and keep our uh, sanity and uh, not not fall off the edge of the earth al green was uh, al green was was still performing on the road this is before the al green church had been established and we just we were fascinated with with how soulful and direct Al Green was, and uh, uh, Teeny Hodges and you know his whole backup band. Uh, they also aspired to the importance of uh, getting the groove right, good timing, and just just finding the sweet spot where it goes. And I I believe that. Uh, it's fair to say that our days in Memphis, we were surrounded with this musical community that to this day has yet to be fully explained. We just know when you go there, you feel it and you get it. But uh, that's kind of what uh, that's kind of what what kept us moving in a forward direction. We we didn't want to turn uh, uh, the corner too fast. Yeah, we just wanted to make sure that. Uh, we had both both feet on the ground, and yeah. when I say that, one one of those feet was back in the blues. No, I, I I and I and I agree with exactly what you're saying because you know if you listen to Trace Hombres and you listen to this, it still has that ZZ Top sound. Maybe it has some new, you know, some new musical styles being influenced, but it's in some twisty things. But for the most part, it is 100% y'all. Even the next song that I want to talk about, TV dinners. Uh, because this is a song that is literally about TV dinners, or am I missing the real meaning of this song? Uh, the meaning, I think, finally connected with the musical track uh, at the last 
at the last minute, um, we were still big fans of our so many so many of our Texas heroes, uh, in particular Doug Som. And as you listen to Doug Som's great records from the '60s, there was the uh, the pounding organ that Augie Meyer provided as a backup for for Doug's uh, signature sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided we had the uh, we had the we we dis- we were digging in the closet there at Arden Studios and found an old Vox Continental organ, and this had been left behind by one of the British groups that had come through town. And uh, I said, "Gee whiz, there's there's that sound, there's there's that organ that that our hero Doug Som was using." Mm-hmm. And uh, oh gosh, through the through the entire. Uh, uh, a trip through the Eliminator sessions, that music track lay dormant because we 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 were struggling to find uh, something that would be supportive in in a lyrical fashion. Well, one night we had gone to a uh, we wrapped up a, a session. We we usually work Monday uh, and then we'd wrap it up on a Friday, no later than the Saturday, and we'd take off for the weekend. Well, at the time. Memphis was enjoying a an explosive uh, bit of growth, particularly for uh, this uh, this generation of this new youth. And we went to a club called Confetti. It was way out uh, near White Station there in Memphis. And uh, our guitar tech and Jimmy Emerson and I went into uh, uh, just to hang out. And this young lady strolled through the front door in a white painter's jumpsuit and as she walked by very attractive as she walked by she had stenciled the word tv dinners why we don't know but just the vision of this uh this fleeting moment and i said well i don't know what it means but we got to go there well <laughs> i don't know where she's been but we she disappeared go. like the legs lady Dude, that's I'm telling right. you, that's like you're getting all these signs from God that are just like, all right, place a TV dinner, place a dirty dog right there. Yep, inspire him. Hey, everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Well, you're also at the perfect age for both TV dinners as well as the birth of rock and roll. So I'm curious, what were your first memories about rock and roll? Oh, I could tell you right off the bat. My mom was... uh a big Elvis Presley fan. And I remember going to see Elvis Presley. Uh, we were in Houston, Texas. He was playing at the Sam Houston, or he's playing at the Sam Houston Coliseum. And uh, my younger sister and I, we were holding our mom's hand. And uh, this was uh, 1955. And uh, when I saw what was going on that stage, I knew I kind of knew before that, but seeing it live and in person, that kind of yeah. solidified the whole thing. And you can, you take that experience, uh, fast forward a couple of years later, 
it was my dad that took me. Uh, my dad was an entertainer, and uh, he said, uh, he said, hop in the car. He said, we're going to go over to the recording studio. I've got some business to do with uh, Bill Holford, who owned the ACA recording studios there, right off of West Gray. And when we when we uh, entered the studio, he pointed to a chair. He said, I want you to go sit down over there. He said, I will be in the office if you need me. You can come find me. But he said, I think you'll enjoy this. There's a band that's coming in to make a record and you might want to see it. Well, lo and behold, the band turned out to be none other than B.B. King and his orchestra. Wow. (laughs) And so B.B. plugged in and uh, the band got uh, organized and set up. And it was at that moment uh, I knew I knew I had the exact same experience with stand-up comedy. I remember watching uh, Comic Relief with my dad when I was six years old, and watching Carlin on on camera, where on stage, and just and being like, "What is that?" Because I want to do that. You know, you know when it hits you. There's some kind of mysterious, invisible thing lurking that's waiting to be ignited, waiting to be discovered. You just you just pointed it out. It's that moment of discovery. <laughs> All oh. of a sudden. You're, you don't have a choice. you got to chase it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. All right, speaking of chasing, uh, the next song, Dirty Dog, which, uh, in my opinion, might be the most poppy, upbeat take a down of a cheating lover that I may have ever heard. Now, I wanted to ask you this about the song. So this displays your anger at a cheating lover, but I noticed, with minor exception... Uh, I don't hear a lot of emotional heart on your sleeve songs like a lot of your contemporaries. Is that on purpose? And is there some Billy Gibbons acoustic torch song album hidden somewhere? I think that the the essence of rock and roll is there's a thread. Um, it, even if it's a tiny sliver, there's this moment of angst. And uh, for those unfortunate souls like all of us rock and rollers, you can't seem to let it go. So yeah. we, we figured out a way to, to express it. For sure. It's, it's how, is there, is there like a, uh, like a, a broken heart song uh, or is there like this horrible heartbreak that you experienced years ago? Oh yeah. But fortunately we seem to always uh, like, I need you tonight. I mean, yeah, we're, that's what I think though. Look, okay, so you crushed me, you stepped on me, I'm trashed, but I need you tonight. We're going to come back. We're going to find our way. For sure, dude. All right. Um, if I could only flag her down, uh, a beautiful rock and shuffle about the perfect lady, uh, but also very unattainable. Same night in Memphis, TV dinners had walked by, followed by two tall Tina. She was, she was six one, gorgeous, shock of curly blonde hair. Uh, had turned down the invitation to be a Revlon fashion model. She was a knockout, and as TV dinners walked by, <laughs> followed closely by two tall Tina. If I could only flag her down. <laughs> no fucking shit, dude. That is so. That is so cool. All right, so you close the album with Bad Girl, uh, and this ends with a live-sounding rocker that has Dusty singing lead, and dude, he fucking wails. In my opinion, this also has like an ACDC uh, feel to it. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely on target. ACDC was uh, joining the club of simplicity combined with, again, uh, 
a, a good tuning and good timing. Um, he and I uh, were hard pressed to match what ACDC had ignited, which was this ridiculously cool, high pitched, screaming, singing kind of thing. And uh, as D- Dusty and I decided we were on a we were on a mission to uh, fall in line with that ACDC kind of uh, I don't know they were leading the charge going one direction we were going the other but uh, I guess the real challenge was how to sing in a key that was well beyond our range yeah. and somehow I think we might have had to do it. Uh, one line per day. It might have taken us about 14 <laughs> days to get through the track, but uh, by and large, that uh, that became one of our favorites. It was crazy. It's a great song, man. It's a great song. All right, let's do some facts, get you out of here. I know you got like eight people waiting for you, so I can't thank you enough for taking any time out cool. to work with us on this. All right, so here's some facts. Uh, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, and then I have some questions for you. All right. The customized The Eliminator, the red 1933 Ford Coupe hot rod that is featured on the cover as well as in the videos. Uh, Clearly, you are a lover and collector of fine vintage automobiles. So I have two questions, okay? Uh, Is it true that you put The Eliminator on the cover of the album so you could write it off on your taxes? Well, yes. Uh, Tim Newman, (laughs) again, the director, stepped forward to save the day. And he said, gee whiz, he said, I really like the uh, images on the album cover. And I said, well, it's a real car. Can we get it in the video? Yeah. He said, well, I don't see why not. And I said, well, neither does my accountant. we got to write this <laughs> thing off. Let's, let's make it work for us. All right. got to ask this. You've got – how many cars do you own, bro? Well, the answer to that is uh, uh, which one is running. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't, I just can't imagine like do you own a Prius? I just can't imagine you in anything other than a badass hot rod. Well, the the Prius is a pretty fun uh contraption. Uh I don't particularly uh uh I haven't found the need to go that direction just yet. I call it a coal burner. <laughs> unless you've got a unless you got solar panels, you're still <laughs> you're still burning coal. Yeah, dude. Um, all right. Your early acceptance by the classic blues artists must have been empowering. But I've got to ask, how did it feel when Jimi Hendrix told the world that you were an up and coming guitarist to look out for? Wow. Uh, another hero to speak of Jimi Hendrix is uh, done in uh, remarkably hushed, respected tones. Um, he and I made uh, early friends when uh when the moving sidewalks got uh, hired to join the Jimi Hendrix experience tour, we, uh, we, we were required to play 45 minutes. And the only way that we could uh, round out the uh, contractual obligations, we had two Jimi Hendrix songs in our set list. Yeah. And I remember the first night we wound up ending with purple haze and Foxy lady. And uh, as the, uh, as the closing measures were uh, uh, rapidly approaching, I looked over in the shadows and here was this guy with his arms folded grinning. And as I walked off the stage, he grabbed me and said, I want to get to know you. He said, you're playing my songs before I get to go out there. He said, you got a lot of nerve. I like you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, that is so incredible. And so he was just, he wasn't at all like, dude, you're playing my shit. He was like, just, I mean, tell me what that must have been like. I mean, because were you nervous to do his own songs in front of him? Well, we didn't really have a choice. And uh, we shrugged our shoulders and I said, well, you know, we're we're, we're the opening act. Maybe uh, he may not be in the building. I don't think it's going to be too... <laughs> to, it may be a big deal. It may not, but uh, we we plowed ahead, and it worked out. And uh, Grant, from that moment forward, uh, we were together every night during the course of the tour, and we kept uh, we it developed into a really interesting uh, uh, friendship that uh, is sorely missed, of course. But yeah. uh, he was doing, th- you know, t- to be at the foot of a guy that had. Uh, Taking the Stratic, the Fender Stratocaster guitar was was his new platform, and he was doing things that I'm pretty sure the the inventors of the instrument never dreamed it could be possible. But he he made it happen. Yeah, um, dude, I love him. I love that so much. All right, "Got Me Under Pressure" was used in a Pennzoil commercial in 2008, and a cover of "Legs" was used for "Le Eggs Pantyhose" in 1988. Both of those make sense. So I got to ask you, what's the strangest thing you've been asked to use your music for? The strangest thing was uh, going to the Mojave Desert to drive a Japanese vehicle made by Honda. And it was a class of cars that were not allowed to be put into the United States. It was it was the K class. And it became very popular in Japan, especially Tokyo, where the roads are so narrow, neighborhood streets don't even have markers. But in order to to traverse these back alleys, you had to squeeze a car about half the width. And uh, uh, the Japanese said, oh, you're going to be uh, uh, you're going to be a, a, a savior to the K class car. The car is skinny, but your music is wide. Oh, <laughs> so, I love well, that. Okay, let's do it. I love that. So let me ask you this. Do you have like a lifetime supply of Pennzoil and pantyhose now from those two commercials? Yeah, we've got enough. Uh, we, you know, all these cars, they're like babies. They they like a lot of attention and a lot of liquids. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Last question. All right. All right, so uh, we had Shep Gordon on the show talking about his career as Alice Cooper's manager, and your late manager, Bill Ham, sounds like another one of those guys that could do it all and would do anything for you guys. Uh, is it fair to consider him the fourth member of ZZ Top? Yes, without question. Imagine a guy willing to take on three guys uh, 18 years old that were out of control and uh, develop a, uh, a actually paving an unexplored uh, uh, part of the earth that became an avenue, and uh, for that we're still uh, we're still very grateful. You know, uh, no, completely. The guy would take one for you. Well, what's the, what's the best advice he ever gave you? Ah, I'll take a page from uh, that which was given to me by BB King. Learn to play what you want to hear. Ooh. I mean, that could be applied to any art form. I yeah, love that. Man. Oh, I love that. All right. And we I was going to ask it earlier, but I want to end the podcast with this. Um, can you please just tell me about your craziest backstage story? 
One that comes to mind, uh, again, we mentioned our good friendship uh, with the guitar hero of heroes, Jeff Beck. Uh, he was playing in uh, New York. He was at the Beacon Theater. And at the conclusion of the show, uh, we were working on a new record. And uh, I entered the dressing room. And there was quite a few visitors that uh, everyone was a bit nervous hanging out with uh, Jeff Beck. And uh, Jeff uh, saw me across the room and I pointed. I said, hey, Jeff, I said, uh, uh, would you join me in the studio? Could we uh, could we collaborate? And he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, yeah, I've got a song that I want you to sing. Well, the room went absolutely silent because Jeff Beck prefers not to sing. Yeah. But uh uh, he got a big laugh out of it. And the next thing, you know, I, I said, look, I know you're, uh, you have an aversion to singing on occasion. You, uh, you've been persuaded to do so. What if he said, I know you're traveling down to, to Texas, you're going to Dallas, Texas. He said, yes, that's correct. And I said, well, you know, Robert Johnson, the great blues player made some of his uh, recordings, not only in San Antonio, but one block away from where you'll be, uh, taking hotel lodging. I said, what if we record you and I in a hotel room, just like Robert Johnson? And he said, that closed the deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The legend, Billy Gibbons. Follow Billy on all social media at Billy F. Gibbons. Go to his website for all things Billy at BillyGibbons.com. And for all things ZZ Top, go to their website, ZZTop.com. I'm so happy to be shaving this goatee. I I just got to say that right now. I'm probably going to post it, but I have to get rid of it. Now, we just listened to ZZ Top from 1983. This week, Little Matty Pinfield picked Uncut. This four-piece band from Toronto fuses drums and drum machines with modern blues and considers ZZ Top as one of their biggest influences. And the song you hear in the background right now, it's their new single, Family Blues. You can find links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on The 500, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line next week it's massive attack week as we go deep into their 1991 debut record blue lines some are calling it the first trip hop record ever made listen to it it's your homework doogle doogle stay fleecy to someone Take
Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.